Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and today I'm joined with Josh Adams. That's my name. <laughs> and we have a special guest today, Jack Marchant. Hey, Jack, welcome. And could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, so my name is Jack Marchant. I'm a software engineer from Australia. Um, I work at a company called Ben. <laughs> Uh, and we do Elixir there. We've got a, a GraphQL API that we uh, we manage and we build. Um, so yeah, I've been running Elixir for around two years now uh, and just enjoying every day of it. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. That's great. Uh, how are you liking... Um... I assume you're using Absinthe as the library for your GraphQL backend. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I, Josh and I both also really like using Absinthe and GraphQL. So it's just, it's fun to talk to more people who are kind of uh, see that benefit. I'd be curious to hear like, you know, what kind of a front end are you doing? Is this web or mobile or what's that, what's that setup like? Yeah, so it's actually both. So we have a native app. Um, that's built with React Native. And then I've got the, the web front, which obviously is also React. Um, so the GraphQL API for us is really beneficial for just being able to write um, these queries and mutations that will then be used by both kind of interchange, interchangeably. Um, so yeah, we're finding it's, it's very helpful um, and a lot easier than writing a bunch of REST APIs or anything else like that. Yeah. And that, I think that kind of leads into um, one of the topics you recently wrote about, uh, which was you're making an unusual comparison. You're talking about uh, the supervision trees that we have in Elixir and you're comparing them to React component trees. And when I first saw that, I was like, huh, I don't think those have anything to do with each other. And then I read your article. I was like, oh yeah, I totally see your point. So I was just curious if you wanted to kind of introduce us to this topic and, and how you see these uh, disparate things actually being having similarities. Yeah, so it is an interesting comparison. Um, and that was kind of, I guess, something that sparked my interest in it initially. So um, just a little bit of background on me. I came from, I guess, like a more front-end focused background. Um, so I was pretty much a front-end developer. Um, uh, for a couple of years and uh, I eventually stumbled upon React after using jQuery and everything else like you, like you do. Um, and so I really got, got into it. And then uh, at some point I just kind of moved over to wanting to try Elixir um, 
and that kind of got me uh, more interested in the back end. So I've kind of got this like split uh, between the front end and the back end. So then to try to compare the two and my experiences with both um, seemed really interesting. So the the whole concept is that you've got supervision trees in Elixir and they're meant to help you manage uh, fault tolerance in your application. And kind of a similar thing you can do in React apps is use uh, the component trees to then isolate uh, sections of your app. So if something fails, like, uh, you know, you throw a JavaScript error, you can handle that and catch that error and then do something else with it. Um, And you kind of, you build up a strategy in a way, which is very similar to what you would do in Elixir. Yeah, I know when I first saw error boundaries in React, I thought, that's a really good idea. And why have I not thought of it? So I haven't done React for a while. Um, I have done React.js previously. And currently, we're pretty much at work. We've all moved to Vue.js. But I think a lot of the, there's a lot of similarities still there. But yeah, so if you could just talk briefly about uh, like the idea of being able to component or using the component tree to catch an, an error and like just kind of describe what does that look like as an end user? What would I see? Yeah, so you would have a parent component um, and you would define a component did catch method on a, like a as a class method. Uh, and then what that does is tells React that when you render your child components, if something fails in that render method, then it will call that component did catch for you to handle the error and stop it from propagating up to the rest of your app. So what would happen is if you were rendering like a a sidebar or something, and this is a section of your app that you've uh, wrapped in a component did catch, then anytime an error gets thrown in that sidebar, um, it would then call that function. You can stop it from affecting the rest of the page. So you're trying to stop that error from crashing the whole page and then giving an end user like a white screen or a blank screen with no information. You kind of say it allows you to then say uh, something has crashed in the in the sidebar or you know or try again or something like that. Um, as far as I know, there's no sort of built-in retry mechanism in that it's not going to react isn't going to try to re-render in a, in a similar way to how you would kind of restart processes in a elixir supervision tree but um that would be kind of cool though yeah because i that one of the benefits of a uh like a, a supervisor in elixir is that, like just what you mentioned there like when a process fails uh and errors it it can be restarted back to a good known state so I could see that being a pattern that you might want to do like, oh, if my sidebar crashes, I want to try and just reload the data uh, back up to a, a good known state of just displaying what, what should be displayed. You know, perhaps the error happened because the user took an action like trying to post, you know, uh, hit a submit button or something like that. And at least get them back to like a good known state and maybe preserve an error message and display something. But yeah, because it... I, I don't know. I, what's funny for me is just seeing how a lot of the features that are built into the beam 
are emulated in all these other technologies. Like uh, just, just looking at, uh, you know, Josh and I both are using Kubernetes. And when you look at, you know, running a, a, uh, an application in a Docker container, Docker can restart an application of like a process when it fails. Kubernetes can start a container, restart a container when it fails. You know, and then you have like all these other layers, like system D can restart things when it, when it fails. It's like just, it's, it's in depth, right? All these different layers where we're trying to get it back to, to going and running. And I just, I love that like, yeah, that's just kind of built into my language and my, my runtime. Yeah, in a lot of ways, building complex systems consists of putting a whole lot of automated IT people in there that ask if you tried turning it off and back on again. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's what a supervisor is. It's like, ah, oh, something's wrong. Turn it off and on. Uh, turn it off and on again, right? Yeah, it's trying to fix that age-old problem. <laughs> so, Jack, you also have another article that you've posted recently, um, comparing or talking about like using a Gen Server, and just kind of, I'm just curious as you've been kind of coming and spending more time with Elixir and kind of digging around a little deeper into the OTP stuff, what are some of the, the hard kind of lessons you've learned? Are there any that stand out? Yeah, I guess specifically uh, to do with gen servers and, and tasks. Um, one thing that you kind of, you think is really important is starting a gen server when you first start like OTP lessons and you try to figure it all out. That's like gen servers are, are everything. And then uh, one thing that you find as soon as you start spawning a lot of them or just working with them generally is that there's a lot of gotchas with them. Um, for example, when you send a message to a gen server, it kind of processes that uh, synchronously. So you can't kind of flood it with a ton of messages and expect it to just be able to handle it and scale to, you know, thousands of messages at a time. Um, so it's, I guess something that you, I guess just coming from that like actor model and having like processes talking to each other, you just assume that it will process it in an instant and, you know, everything will be fine. Um, so that's something you kind of learn as you pick it up. Um, and it's, yeah, I guess, that has kind of led me to wanting to figure out a good pattern for using gen servers. I don't know if there's really a, a set standard way because there's, there's so many different ways that you could use gen servers and, um, you know, and you've got the abstractions, uh, uh, abstractions around it, um, like agents um, that kind of help you or help guide you into, you know, if you want to use it for state, use an agent, um, or if you need that kind of fine-grained control and you want to manage the client-server interactions, then use a gen server yourself kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, figuring out when to use which module and in what context it makes the most sense, I think, is something that over time you have to learn just by using Elixir. It's not something that's kind of in the docs and you can say, oh, if you, you know, need something, something, then use a gen server and define these callbacks. I mean, nothing in programming is really like that black and white anyway, but um, I think it's just useful as a like, community as we keep trying to build up documentation that we come back to people who are learning this stuff for the first time and figuring out what's the best way to teach someone how to use a gen server. Is it 
starting to teach them the known abstractions we already have around it or do we go straight to the gen server in the hopes that they'll pick it up uh, sort of straight away? I have seen that as a, a common sticking point, just like the idea of, you know, I've come from an object-oriented language and gen servers do kind of model an object kind of like in a, a familiar way that it has a creation and manages its own state. And, and I think what happens is people, um, they, they tend to be thinking still imperatively, like just like when, when I'm writing my object oriented code, I think sequentially in imperative code and I'm not actually realizing that, you know, with Phoenix by default, I'm concurrent and a gen server by default you know, like if I'm creating a named gen server, then there's one in this node that has that name and anyone who wants to talk to it, uh, it might be like many concurrent processes all trying to talk to one process and then it becomes a bottleneck. And I, I see that as a, uh, a common sticking point like you've kind of identified there. And I think a lot of people, um, and myself included when I was learning Elixir, it's like you, like, like as you said, is we try to jump to gen servers uh, to, we want to get it right. We want to get our head into it. And we kind of don't realize that for most of the time, we probably don't need one. And I think we're misapplying when, when to use them and, and just kind of creating bottlenecks. Yeah. Well, that's the interesting thing. You can kind of come from another language. Like I came from, uh, like a sort of PHP background as well in, in terms of the, like a backend server side language. Um, so everything was a class and you instantiate a class and you call methods on it. And, um, that kind of, it, it is kind of familiar to go to a gen server and think, oh, okay, I'm, I'm in a familiar place. Let's use this. Um, but yeah, even with like gen servers, it doesn't really solve a lot of problems that you, you have, um, in Elixir there, there are some things that it helps with. Um, but it's, it's hard to know just when and where, to use uh, the different sort of modules that are in the Elixir standard library. I think that's probably half of the, the problem is just educating people who might not, who might come from an object oriented background or another, you know, sort of, um, but just aren't familiar with this uh, sort of process to process uh, model in Elixir. I'd be curious, Josh, to hear from you also on, on just like what are some of the, standard patterns where you think, ah, this is where I have found a good use for a gen server just to kind of help people understand. There's a, there's an early blog post from Jose, I think that sort of discussed, uh, you know, tasks and agents weren't, weren't part of Elixir way back in the day when I first started using it. And so after they'd both kind of landed, uh, he wrote a blog post that identified, Hey, do you have computation you want to run asynchronously? That's tasks. Do you have state you want to manage asynchronously? That's, uh, that's agents. And you have a thing that does both, that's, that's gen servers. Um, and that pretty much covers it. And also, like, if I, a lot of times I'll find that I explicitly want sort of supervision, right? I want, I want a uh, somewhat detailed supervision strategy. And, and that, that too is gen servers, because inevitably, if that's the case, then I have, I have a thing that I want a, a gen server for. Um, I, like I've done a little little game server thing and, you know, spinning up a gen server that exists to synchronize uh, or to, uh, I guess, serialize inputs from multiple places. Uh, that's a very reasonable, I mean, honestly, that's kind of like what, what they're for. So 
Um, but once you realize that they exist kind of two serialized uh, inputs coming in, then you also immediately identify, oh, right, it could be a bottleneck. Yeah, I've, I've uh, like a couple places where I've seen gen servers really useful. Like, yes, when I want something supervised. Um, also, I found it like if I have a background job that I want to run on some interval uh, where it's like it's not interacting with like a user request. It's just periodically run and do some maintenance work on, you know, database or recomputing things. That's a great use case for one that I found. Another one is, uh, say, I wanted to have, uh, in one case I had, uh, we, we had a partner organization and I wanted to have a gen server manage a queue of requests and then using gen stage, have a little worker pool of like six workers so that they would all be making these HTTP requests, which were sometimes long-lived requests because our partner was slow and we didn't want to flood them. Uh, so just as a way of intentionally performing a bottleneck and saying things will queue up and if you know it's, there's persistence in the database so that I'm not going to lose them, but I'm using the gen servers to manage how many concurrent workers I have because I uh, just as to be a good net citizen for this uh, partner. And so I think that there's an example there where I think gen servers make sense. But if I think most they call nicely with Phoenix channels as well. So like when I have someone join a channel and I want to say this, this is an actor that represents the connected user. Um, so I can do things like prefetch for a cache for them because I, I know they're likely to come in with a request shortly that asks for certain data. So I can have something that kind of simulates them and does that sort of prefetch logic. That's uh, really common. I do that fairly frequently. Yeah. But I think a lot of the times, like when people are thinking of a typical Rails style application or even, you know, a PHP application, for the most part, they're just handling requests and turning them into responses. They might, they're touching the database, but they probably don't need a gen server for that type of operation. And so uh, I, I just want to encourage people to like, don't, Feel like you have to start using them in your app in your if you're like if you if i don't start using a gen server i'm not a real elixir developer right that's not necessarily true and don't don't uh i think they're fun to play with uh but don't feel like you have to throw one in just so you can uh, say you did i guess yeah I, I just going back on the user sort of user specific caching uh purpose the nice thing about using them for that is like it's linked to the the channel so when it goes away, I don't have to remember, oh, let's clear the cache so that I'm not using spare memory for a user that's no longer here. Uh, it's just going to go away when the user goes away. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs. And this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash elixir. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. 
Yeah, so Jack, uh, you wrote up about uh, using task async and await and using that to just kind of spin off work. Uh, I think that is a great place where people should be using them. And could you just kind of give people an introduction to how you would use that? Yeah, so I, um, I guess knowing these kind of pitfalls that you can often uh, fall into with using a gen server, I kind of thought about how I could better manage um, just some work to be done and then have a gen server kind of handle um, both sort of starting the job to kind of say do this like asynchronous work and then as well handling the response for whenever that finishes and kind of reporting back to the rest of the app and just handling it uh, in a certain way. Um, so for that purpose, I kind of just created a, a function to then spin off an async task. Um, so what that meant was that I could send a request to the gen server it would then start up the async task and then by default without using uh, task await, it will send a message back to whatever process started it so that that process can then handle um, that message, um, which in this case, because it's a task has the response of uh, whatever function was called. So it's basically just a way to wrap the task async module in a way that is convenient for me. Yeah, and I'm glad you kind of outlined that because, and and as Josh had pointed out before, I think you both, you guys both said it, but uh, that task is in higher level abstraction around a gen server where it does work, but has no state. And I think when most people think, oh yeah, I want to take advantage of OTP and I want to have, I can do these things in parallel. That's probably what they want to jump for is start using a task. Because that's where they're spinning out. Oh, I can I can do these. Uh, say I have to run six queries that are pretty unrelated, but I'm going to need them all. So I can spin them out and have them do their work concurrently, and then await and get the results and kind of combine them all. Yeah, the task is a super powerful um, module that uh, I found like really useful for sort of utilizing what Elixir can do and, and really like showing off how easy it is to just spin up a task, do some concurrent work, and then, um, yeah, kind of handling that in a way that uh, is convenient. Uh, yeah, I think using a, a gen server just made it easier uh, in sort of the domain logic and the application code to kind of wrap it around because otherwise you would end up having, you know, just these, you know, private functions or whatever that are spinning up. Uh, tasks and then handling the response and everything. It's just a way to neatly couple that uh, that logic, which is something I've just been trying to be mindful of as you have more sort of um, just general like, uh, like spinning up tasks and, and trying to handle them. I know when I went to my first uh, Erlang factory, there was, uh, you know, Elixir was very much new kid on the scene and uh, there was a lot of discussion about, oh, we've got all these modules that do things, but we've been able to do those things in Erlang for forever and we just do them ad hoc and it's silly that you have them. But but honestly, like task supervisors weren't a thing that, that people used, at least in code that I read back then in, in Erlang. And I don't think that without some kind of common abstraction that people used regularly, they were gonna sort of appear. So I think that's one of the, one of the niceties that 
Elixir provided, even when it was, oh, but you've reinvented the wheel. Uh, I think some some nice things fell out of it. Yeah, I think like it's probably common in a lot of things. You know, a lot of uh, like modules in Elixir is um, they are kind of abstractions around common things that you do as you build an Elixir app. Um, but I think that's a good thing to allow people to kind of reach for it when they don't necessarily understand everything that happens under the hood, but they know the the public API kind of thing of how it works and how they can work with it. Um, that's something, I guess, um, like in, in Erlang, maybe, I don't know, I haven't written a lot of Erlang, um, that maybe it's, you know, a lot easier to just manage everything at sort of that low level. Um, but yeah, it just, I guess, like any abstraction, it just helps uh, to get started with it. And that makes the developer really productive, um, which I've found great about Elixir. And it's one of the reasons why we use Elixir at VAMP is because it's really productive for developers. Yeah, I've, I've joked Elixir is come for the syntax, stay for the abstractions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, on uh, episode 41, we talked with uh, Francesco Cesarini and he, one of the points he made, which I thought was really fascinating, was just talking about, you know, he's been in the Erlang community for a long time and he's uh, one of the co-founders of Erlang Solutions. And, and he talked about how Elixir, when, you know, kind of coming up, that what it brought was like a focus on kind of developer user experience. Like how does the developer interact with this, uh, this runtime and things like adding agents and tasks are part of that. It's like, it's like making it easier to do the right thing. And I, I think that's part of what he saw as a really valuable benefit that Elixir was bringing to the Erlang community. And yeah, so I'm, I'm a, really a, a fan of those types of uh, simplifications that make it easier to, to start using what otherwise is a, kind of like a, a complex um, abstraction. Yeah, and I don't think it's like, it's over abstracting it all and that it's not trying to do too much or, or help you too much. It's kind of just saying like, these are the common building blocks and rather than you spending time in your app or like in every app that you use, um, trying to, you know, make a nice abstraction and potentially just coming up with different APIs. Let's create one standard API that has all of the things that generally are going to want to use, uh, which is all of those abstractions. And then you've got the gen server, Anyway, so if you want to manage all that yourself or you have a really special use case, you can still do that, which I think is really great. Yeah, I remember seeing lots of people say like, you know, you do, and there's a, there's a really good graphic going around that's like, you can, all of these things that have different, uh, uh, sort of different dependencies or whatnot that you use, like background views, et cetera, like the solution to all of them is processes. And that's true, but you could also say like, the solution to all of them is like, Turing machines, but it's nice to have something that's a little more specialized. So I'm curious, Jack, you, you mentioned uh, that you guys are using Elixir in your office at your work. And so what has that been like for, um, I don't know, were you, were you there when they adopted and started moving to Elixir or uh, were they already doing Elixir when you came? Like, what's it like there and, and, and uh, for bringing new people in, how you're training, all of that? Yeah, so it's I've kind of been on an interesting journey with Elixir. I've had kind of 
the sort of two sides of the coin in terms of like adoption and um, just kind of joining and it's already already there being used. So a company that I was at previously, uh, we had adopted Elixir um, and were migrating over to it from a PHP code base. Um, initially, it's very hard to train people uh, and kind of get everyone on board to seeing the, the benefits of uh, using Elixir. Um, I think that, I guess, process has become easier uh, now having, you know, sort of being in a company now that has Elixir and that's kind of our default. We don't have any other stack, um, for at least for backend, um, just lying around. So it's kind of a lot easier for us to say we're kind of an Elixir shop. Um, so that makes it easier when you bring in new people in that we don't, you know, need a whole bunch of different languages to, to handle, but, um, one thing is it's very hard at the moment to, to hire uh, Elixir developers in Australia. I think the community is still growing a lot. Like it's, it's definitely getting bigger every day, but um, it's hard to find someone who has that experience with Elixir. So oftentimes what we do is we try to pull people in from other languages and say, hey, you know, even if you know, you know, object oriented programming, that's fine. Are you interested in functional programming? And then kind of, <laughs> drop that there and, and see um, if they're interested because uh, I don't think you need to have all of this extra experience in, in Erlang or um, even know about Elixir. We, we um, have a few people that have just kind of started using Elixir once they joined the company. So, um, and they're already really productive with it. So you kind of, you see that, and that kind of gives you motivation to kind of bring more people in and say, yeah, like you, you don't have to be a computer science expert to figure out Elixir. It's just another programming language. Um, yeah. I'm curious, uh, like a lot of the people that I come in contact are coming to Elixir from primarily Ruby or I guess some even Java. Um, but it sounds like you and a lot of the people you talk with are coming from PHP. What is the, what is that coming? Uh, what's that story like coming to Elixir from uh, that PHP perspective? Cause like the reason I ask is a lot of people say, Oh, well, it's very a Ruby inspired language. It's like the syntax is very Ruby esque. And so people think, you know, that, that lowers the bar for learning it. But, you know, I, I just curious as to what your perspective on that is. Yeah, so it definitely is like you see a lot of people coming from Ruby um, because the syntax is familiar. So you think it's going to be a, a really easy transition. I think oftentimes you probably don't find that that's the case and it's difficult, you know, coming from any language to try and figure out the idiosyncrasies of Elixir. So I think it's kind of uh, coming from PHP is kind of very similar to Ruby anyway. Um, obviously you don't have the, the knowledge of the syntax or maybe some of the background of the, the community um, that goes into Elixir, but generally it's the same story. It's like you have an app that you need to add all these extra services to just to be able to get it to scale properly and you kind of manage all these things together. Um, whereas in Elixir, you can kind of 
get that kind of out of the box a little bit and um, and it just makes it a lot easier to do things that would be I guess not not impossible in PHP maybe in some cases but um, definitely a lot harder to do uh, and you would probably you know need to be a, a bit more of an expert in PHP to figure the, those things out uh, similar to Ruby um, yeah so I, I think that's like generally a similar story um, yeah yeah I uh I run a, a meetup uh, here in Utah and I, so I have an opportunity to talk to a lot of people who are very new. And one of the, the problems I've seen a lot that people really struggle with, and I, you know, this is someone coming from JavaScript recently that I was talking to. And uh, one of the problems is really getting over that idea of immutable state and just that they're, you know, operating on a map or something and they're expecting it to mutate the map. And that is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a common thing in all these object-oriented programming languages is that uh, you know, I'm passing in an object and I'm calling stuff on it and it gets mutated and it's changing the thing itself as opposed to immutable where, you know, I'm, I'm getting a new thing back that has the, the new state that I want. So I think that's, that is just a, a hard thing for a lot of people to get. It's really unlearning a lot of the things that we learned uh, coming up in object-oriented. So I don't know stuff yeah i don't i think um it kind of uh can help in some ways to have that knowledge um yeah like i was talking to some people at the conference about um uh like object oriented programming and and you know kind of everyone thinking that it's it's really bad or it's just a bad way to program things and i don't think that that's the case i think there's definitely pros in using or advantages in using um, object-oriented programming and having that that uh, conceptual model. Um, and but that that being said, I, I tend to enjoy the guarantees that um, having a functional language can give you. Um, so, but I think yeah, at the end of the day, it's probably going to come down to personal preference. Um, and uh, yeah, it's hard to say that, you know, one would be better than the other, but. I remember distinctly when I was first learning Elixir and was very much stuck in my sort of Ruby mutability ways, uh, having some issues with uh, fairly complicated-ish things that I typically would do in a loop and, and mutate things and asking for help from someone and them telling me, oh, you just want reduce. And I was like, thanks a lot. That's a word. Good job. I don't know what to do with that. And uh, obviously now I do. And now I get really frustrated because I've had people ask me for help in a similar situation. And I can't help but just say like, you, you just want reduce. Um, and I know I used to, we were talking about gen servers. I used to solve the problem by like pretending I had mutability by making a gen server and I had all this complex stuff when I did in fact just want reduce. Uh, that's great. <laughs> so Jack, you mentioned that you were out at a conference out our way on the other side of the big pond. Uh, so you live in Australia and you were out at, uh, what was it? Lone Star Elixir Conf? Yeah. So I got to, to go over the weekend to Lone Star Elixir Conf. Uh, it was the first Elixir conference that I'd ever been to. So it was a really, uh, good way for me to, I guess, be part of the global Elixir community or at least like the, the U S community. Um, yeah, I had a great time. It was a really well, well put together 
conference uh, and the talks were were pretty good all around. That's that's awesome. I haven't didn't have the chance to, to make it to this conference. Um, I was curious as to like the videos as as a time of when we're talking about this, the videos are not yet posted. So uh, I see you posted uh, some highlights, which I'm going to link to a, uh, your blog post about that so people can check that out. Um, but you also talked about Phoenix Live View and how Chris McCord actually talked a little bit more about that. And I was just curious if you can give us any updates because, you know, I'm hungry for information. I didn't get to go. So what, what's the news? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think um, something that came up a lot uh, during Chris's talk was just, when is this going to be released? When can we get our hands on it? And um, yeah, from what I could tell, uh, he's planning on releasing it you know, around April or May. Um, so yeah, I guess that's, that's when everyone is kind of on the edge of their seat waiting for it. Uh, but definitely looking at the, the content and, um, he, he kind of, um, touched on the, I guess the impact that it will have in that you as an Elixir developer don't have to write JavaScript, uh, just to get like a real time application working. I think that's, just an important first step um, of moving towards like sort of this full stack Elixir project, basically. Um, Cause I think it would be really helpful for people just to be able to showcase what Elixir has to offer just by building these, you know, real time UIs um, without having to spend a lot of time investing in the JavaScript ecosystem and, you know, installing things and getting things working first before kind of proving out their idea. Um, so I think, yeah, just lowering that barrier, I think is the the main goal of the project. And I think it was pretty honest. Chris was um, saying that uh, it's not going to solve every problem and it's not really intending to, uh, it's going to get you to a certain point and then you might need to then switch over to a, a you know, JavaScript view library like view or react um, to kind of get you the rest of the way. Um, but yeah, hopefully that sort of migration plan will be pretty easy as well. I think uh, it's worth pointing out just from our previous topic of gen servers that uh, live view, as far as I understand it, is implemented where there is a gen server per user connection and it is managing the state of that user's connection. And I think that is a perfect uh, example of where it's appropriate. You know, it is tied to an actual user's session and as opposed to like a gen server that many different requests or, or different processes are talking to. But yeah, so I am really excited about Phoenix Live View. It is one of those things where, like at work where I, I am right now, we have projects that are, you know, it's a small team and it's a big system and it's grown over time. And we have lots of React and we have some View and we have, you know, an Elixir backend. And I would just love to be able to throw out a lot of the View and, and front end JavaScript because it's, it's actually not needed for our application. We just need a little bit of, you know, real-time updates and some progress and, you know, all that, that kind of stuff, which I think is 
where a lot of people fall and where I think this is, holds a lot of promise for solving those kinds of problems that, that I have and I think a lot of other people have. Yeah, for sure. I think another uh, sort of uh, benefit that you can have in, in building um, like the, the view layer in Elixir is that you get all of the uh, supervision uh, strategies that we, we were speaking about earlier. Um, so in that way, you can kind of build these fault-tolerant UIs in the same way you would build a fault-tolerant app in Elixir. Um, so you mentioned because they're, they're all gen servers, well, they can all be managed processes. And then as you nest in the DOM, or as you would in the DOM, um, you can kind of nest gen servers that will then restart or, you know, they might fail. Um, and so they can be restarted and go back to their, their last known state. And you kind of get that ability that we all know about in, in Elixir and you can push it the whole way into the browser, which is really cool. Hey folks, let me tell you about a really cool thing. It's the .tech domains. Listen, you work in tech. I work in tech. We all do things that affect technology. So why not have it reflected in our domain names? If you head over to get.tech or head over to your favorite domain registrar, you can pick up a .tech domain right now. In fact, if you want to get show notes for this show, you can check them out at elixirmix.tech. Are there any other points uh, that you wanted to kind of give us updates on or something you found really significant that would be worth sharing uh, from the conference that you attended? Uh, yeah, probably the, the sort of biggest thing that I noticed was the focus on embedded systems. Uh, obviously with the NERVS projects, um, there was a, a talk from uh, Justin uh, who opened the, the conference and he kind of showed how easy it was to just build an embedded system and then actually deploy it. And they're, all, they're working on, um, on building out uh, this project that's going to allow you to just deploy remotely to devices. Um, so I think just, again, that sort of barrier to entry into embedded systems um, with Elixir is going to make it a really, um, it, it's going to make Elixir, I guess, like stand out from a lot of other languages in that you can have this full web layer. And we like, that's, I guess, what I'm personally most, um, most used to. Um, but then uh, you can kind of, by learning Elixir, you can kind of build an embedded system as well. Like, I just think that that's a, a crazy idea. Um, but yeah, it's kind of that philosophy of learning once and then writing everywhere, which kind of reacts, I guess, made famous. Um, and yeah, I, ho I hope the same thing kind of happens for Elixir. So, yeah. One of the things I think uh, re related to nerves is that, in the IoT space, there have been a lot of kind of high profile failures, uh, either that the, the device becomes unsupported very quickly by a startup or, and so your, you know, your, your electronic, you know, thermostat stops working or something, or that there's a security vulnerability and it's not patched. And like, there are these IoT devices that are created without the capability of being patched. And so then people are turning to like big solutions like uh, Azure, uh, Microsoft is, uh, I forgot what they called it, but they, they have a, uh, a 
bot-like, uh, you know, all around embedded systems and being able to manage those. And it's like, I was so impressed with what the Nerves Hub is doing around that. And it's like, I can self-host that. I, I don't have to pay an ex, you know, some large company a lot of money and be beholden to them. You know, and so I, I'm really impressed with where they're going. And I, I do think it is one of those things that's lowering the bar or lowering the, the, the difficulty uh, for what I can accomplish and how far I can get in, in doing these uh, embedded systems. And so uh, cur currently, I don't have a use case for an embedded system other than something to play with. So, but uh, I, I am very excited to see where they go with that. So yeah, thanks for that update. Yeah, I hope to I hope to be able to give uh, like an actual use use uh, feedback on NerveSub because I absolutely have a use case for an embedded system thing that I've been wanting to build for forever and uh, not forever but for months. And is, this I, is it is it related to your goats? It is related to goats and chickens. And <laughs> the, 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 first, the first pass is really related to sort of home monitoring. Like I literally just want to be able to throw up these Raspberry Pis with cameras on them and uh, record you know, photographs, not even video, just photographs regularly, maybe use something like motion to, to capture videos occasionally and just throw them, dump them into a file system. Like very basic stuff, but being able to trivially flash a thing and it's on my network and joins the cluster uh, and becomes manageable from a relatively trivial web app that I absolutely will build using LiveView uh, makes me makes me happy. And I, I'm uh, really I've col I've collected most of the most of the hardware, and I expect sometime this summer I'll find myself with a few days. And uh, really looking forward to it because I haven't played with Nerves in about a year and a half, and they've done a lot. And on, separately on another project I was working on, we had and not a Nerves embedded system, but we had a sort of a bunch of hardware that is located at uh, customer sites. And we had to manage a bunch of the certificate management and stuff that NerveSub provides ourselves. And if NerveSub had been around, we probably could have co-opted it. So even just from that perspective, it seems, it seems interesting because I can, I can, I have had a use case for NerveSub that doesn't involve nerves, or at least, you know, for a lot of the stuff that it, that it does and kind of glues together that doesn't involve nerves. So I anticipate at some point in the future, I'll have another similar project and, hopefully can, can uh, steal. Hopefully the uh, byproduct of nerves progressing so much is that we're going to have all of these Elixir engineers that have really complex home automation systems. <laughs> yes. And one of the other things is uh, I just want to mention is like, I have a, a coworker who's been getting into nerves and kind of playing with it and he's newer to Elixir and just, mentioning how you know he really is a newbie in this and he make he made the effort to kind of reach out to the nerves people and say hey i was wondering could you do this with the way the project is set up or could you explain you know basically like when you say phoenix new and it it like says oh well we know you're probably going to want ecto and all these other things uh and and if you don't want them you turn them off but we assume you do want them by default. And so he's just asking some questions like that. And they're like, oh yeah, that would be a really good idea. Because he didn't, he, he made the mistake of not knowing that there was these important libraries that he should be using by default, but they weren't turned on by default. So just people getting involved, total newbie. You don't have to be an expert. Just get involved and kind of share like the, the pain points of where you're at and what you're learning and kind of share that. And they say, oh yeah, we can fix that. 
And so that, that is one way people can contribute uh, to projects like this that, uh, that, you know, when like Justin Schneck, he's, you know, incredible at what he's doing with the nerves project. And, you know, he has lost that newbie view sometimes, you know, it's like, you know, when you've been in any, in any system, you know, programming language or anything, you forget what it's like to be a newbie. And so coming in and just sharing, asking questions, that's a great way to contribute to. Yeah. I love that. That's going to help grow the Elixir community as well and just make that entry a lot easier. Yeah, as, as we're discussing embedded systems, I wanted to also mention a blog post I found a couple of weeks back uh, that relates to a thing called AtomVM, which is an, uh, a Beam virtual machine for, or an Erlang virtual machine for uh, the ESP32, which is this $3 microcontroller. It has lots of interesting stuff on it, like um, Ethernet, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth low energy, as well as uh, LoRa, which is, which is super interesting to be able to have a $3 uh, long-range wireless uh, Erlang virtual machine hardware. That's that's exciting, and I want to play with that for sure. And you can run Erlang on that, or the Beam? Yeah, well, there is AtomVM, which is a, an Erlang virtual machine that this guy that works for an IoT company is building presently to work. But it, it, does, it does run. I don't know what all it runs yet, but it can run <laughs> stuff. I'm just looking at that link you shared and it's like a microcontroller with less than 500 K of Ram. It's like, wow, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. So more power to them. Yeah. I imagine, I don't, I don't actually know if that's like a massive problem in embedded systems land, but like just being able to run Elixir and not have to use like much memory at all and get like a fully fledged application just running on something very small seems like a really powerful thing. Well, this is low power enough. I could imagine running it off of, off of solar and a tiny battery and that, uh, and it has long range wireless connectivity built in. And so those, that conjunction of stuff makes it super interesting. If you want to scatter uh, elixir around your property, <laughs> I, I do want yeah. to do that. <laughs> That's great. You can start talking about how your your yard is a cluster. Yep, that's the goal. <laughs> that's really cool. Well, Jack, is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up? Uh, not, not really, no. I think we've covered a fair bit. A lot of different topics. It's been good. Uh, yeah, it has. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, so we have a lot of these resources uh, that will be in the show notes. I am curious though. Um, uh, so let's first, let's move, uh, let's head to picks. So, uh, Josh, do you have anything you'd like to share? Can I go later momentarily? Yes. yes, I can go with mine. Uh, previously we'd had a guest on and who recommended, uh, the book deep work by Cal Newport. And I have, uh, it, that was like the third or fourth recommendation I'd heard for this book. And I thought, you know, that's probably, I should go check it out. So I, I checked it out. I'm still currently listening to it in audio uh, format. And uh, I just wanted to recommend that book. It is very interesting. I'm not done with it, but I am really enjoying it. And what it's representing is just ways to think about how we, um, how we focus and how we can structure our time and our day to 
enable us to have deeper focus uh, so that we can be more productive. And actually we are happier when we are able to focus at that deeper level. So that's my pick. Josh, are you ready? I am ready. I had to, had to find the link. Uh, so yes, a friend of mine sent me a link to a absolutely crazy GitHub repo called Writing Self-Modifying Perl. And it's a collection of examples for writing self-modifying Perl files. And given Perl 6's uh, support for like grammars as a first level construct, it's, uh, it's crazy. And even just the the profile itself or uh yeah the, the profile itself that is the examples has plenty of hacks around it for instance making it render nicely if you treat it like html there's just it's it's a fantastic example of just pure hackery that's scary <laughs> all right jack do you have something you can share um i don't really i have my blog which i'd love people to check out but uh apart from that I don't really have any, any picks. Okay. Well, uh, we are going to make sure we include uh, your blog in, in the articles that we were specifically referencing in our show notes. If people are interested in finding uh, more about you, uh, perhaps meeting up with you at the next conference you attend or anything like that, where would you direct them to go? I would say to hit me up on Twitter. I think it's at JackMarchant10 is my handle. Awesome. All right. Well, Jack, it was a pleasure talking with you today. If uh, I hope people can follow your blog and kind of meet up with you and, uh, and I'm glad you were able to come on. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure talking with both of you. All right. That's it for today. We hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.